The Old Testament reading today is from Isaiah 51, verses 12 and 13. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? The grass withers and the flower fades. Continuing in these hard sayings of the Bible, and some of them are not as hard as others. Some of them may, you may think like, eh, it's not too hard of a saying. Some of them are hard for us as Christians to hear, and some of them are easy for us, but hard for non-Christians to hear. And the whole point, uh, again, to remind us all is sort of to equip us to know how to be able to approach conversations with skeptics, and that nowadays often includes Christians. Uh, in fact, every one of you here who may be a convinced believer and follower of Jesus has some nagging doubts in the back of your head about some tough areas of the Bible. that You're not exactly sure how to approach. Or if somebody confronted you and said, this really offends me, you'd think to yourself, I know there's an answer out there, I just don't have it. And so the point of all of it is to equip us um, and enable us, empower us, to be able to have conversations and understand the word of God better. Uh, Craig, I'm going to read our text this morning from Luke 12, 4 through 5. Jesus says in Luke 12, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more than they, that they can do. But I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks for the grace that gathers us here on this Lord's Day together as your people. And yet, in many ways, we're no different than um, everyone else around us in our neighborhoods and communities in that we're all fallen sinners who are uh, grappling with the biggest challenges of our lives and the world and struggling to find meaning in it all. Father, we pray that you would give us the meaning of this passage this morning and Equip us and empower us and teach us through your word by the Spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, Machiavelli, the political theorist from the Renaissance period, said it's better to be feared than loved if you can't have both. In other words, um, if, you can, if you can, from his perspective, be both loved and feared as a politician or a leader or a king or someone in power, that's great, but if you can't be both feared and loved, it's better to be feared. Because he argues it's more of a motivator to get people to do what you want them to do. A recent article by The Six Group, uh, an HR firm, says that leaders that are feared are perceived to wield more power by their employees. They are figures who often give out harsh punishment and very little rewards when employees, they say, are motivated by fear, they're more likely to push themselves to be efficient and avoid error or to avoid being punished. In contrast, leaders that focus on taking care of their employees create a stronger employer-employee bond 
And it makes employees feel valued and can help in creating and fostering creativity and a stronger bond and work environment, uh, a healthier work environment that boosts a company's employee retention. But it comes at a cost. And the cost is that employees that feel loved by their boss and feel that sense of freedom, that they're not in danger of getting fired at any moment, tend to slack off more and not listen to what the boss says and disobey and disregard the rules. And the same dichotomy is true for nations. Uh, totalitarian regimes are very orderly, typically. People obey the rules and do what they're told because they are afraid of harsh punishments, severe punishment. They respect leaders out of fear. And free societies like ours uh, and others in the developed world are incredibly prosperous because people aren't afraid to break from the status quo. My daughter is now watching The Crown. Maybe a year ago, I think I shared that I had gone through all four seasons, and now she's watching it, and I'm watching it with her. And at some point in like the 60s or 70s, the Brits recognize that the Americans have a lot more solutions to economic problems and societal challenges because we're a new society and we're not constrained by tradition. And so they often look to their American cousins. But what the, the Brits have and, and the monarchy has is this rich, incredibly rich tradition. And of course, when you dispense with tradition, often things are lost. But in America, uh, we're incredibly prosperous um, because there is this freedom, uh, unconstrained and unrestrained by tradition. We are creative and innovative, and there's a freedom to fail here without fear of reprisal. But it comes at a cost. Western-style democracies like ours have some of the highest crime rates in the world because people just aren't afraid of harsh, severe punishment when they break the rules. Now, why am I talking about all of this? Well, we just read a passage of scripture that talks about fear and fearing God and learning whom to fear, who we should fear. So what about it? Does God want to be more feared than loved or more loved than feared? Think about it for a moment. Many people have a fear-based relationship with God. For them, the fear of God's judgment always looms larger than his love. Maybe that's you, or maybe that's a part of your story or your faith journey. Maybe you have felt or at times feel that, boy, when the day comes and you've got to answer to God, you're going to be in big trouble. The problem, of course, with that is um, allegiance is hard to maintain over time when a relationship is based on fear. Um, before I shaved all my hair off, I asked my barber, who I'd been going to since I moved here to St. Louis to come to seminary all those years ago, um, why she stopped going to the Catholic Church. And she said, well, you know, I was taught that God was, you know, would judge the wicked 
And I'm looking around and I'm seeing all these, you know, all these people doing all these crazy things and I figure I'm a good person and if God's not judging them, what do I gotta worry about? So I stopped going to church. And I thought, that's an interesting formulation, an interesting idea that the reason you go to church is so God won't like judge you or destroy you, right? Because God's gonna get you, he's gonna be mad at you. Instead of the idea that we come to church, we have a relationship with our living Lord out of a sense of love. The fear exhausted her. A lifetime of fear, she got to the point where she just said, I don't need it. And she sort of dispensed with God altogether. Maybe you have felt that at some point in your life, that life would be a whole lot easier if you just kind of like moved on and weren't so worried about what God thought about you or whether God cared what you did with your life. In fact, many people right now in our culture are doing that very thing. They're just kind of tired of it all. Now, that doesn't mean it's right, but that's kind of where we're at as a culture right now. People just, we, we idolize autonomy, right? Now, just as a quick side note, this isn't a part of my sermon, but <clears throat> there's sort of this matrix of happiness that um, social psychologists and even uh, Christian theologians talk about, and it's a triad between autonomy or freedom, community, and meaning. Freedom, community, and meaning. And we, if we don't have enough freedom, we're not really happy, right? If you're totally and completely constrained and without the ability to do what you want to do, that, that does not create a kind of happiness and joy. But when we have absolute and total freedom, we don't have meaning. We don't have meaning. Why? Because meaning is often defined by our community. Community helps us define meaning, whether it's the community of our church, the community of our family, the community of our society. And, and that has a lot to do with sort of our corporate identity as people groups. And in our culture right now, we idolize more than anything autonomy. And what you're finding is we have the highest depression rates in our history because each one of us is now left to formulate meaning out of every experience on our own, independent of a community. We all want community. Here's the challenge. Community helps us define meaning, which makes us happy. When we have meaning, we are happier. Absolutely free lives with no meaning are sad lives, depressed lives, and like I said, we have the highest suicide rate now in our society than we have ever had, even though we are freer than we ever have been. And the friction point may be that we don't understand or we're coming to understand as a society that to have community, which helps us define meaning, you have to give up some of your freedom. You have to sacrifice freedom to truly have community. Because it's in those communal gatherings and being a part of a corporate identity that there is a sort of corporate definition of our lives. I noticed this years ago as I was struggling with why teenage kids in America, this is 20 years ago, were committing suicide even though they're the most prosperous people in the world. Communities in Middle East, Africa, and Indochina, you, suicide is almost unheard of. Why? Because those communities are much more traditional and they are much more communal. And so everyone knows their place. 
The father, he knows his role. The wife knows her role. The daughter knows her role. The son knows his role. Everyone knows their place. Now, they may feel that they don't have all the freedom they'd like, but the truth is nobody's confused about identity or meaning. But in our culture, because we have idolized autonomy and we've absolutized this autonomy, everyone is now free to make their own meaning of every experience, but that brings with it a sorrow and burden and pressure that is absolutely crushing. And if you're experiencing some of that depression and sadness right now in our society, it may mean that you don't have enough community. It may mean that you are not connected to other people enough. Again, you can't have community without sacrifice. And so if you worship and absolutize your autonomy, you won't really have community because it takes sacrifice, right? Well, this, this group, uh, Thursday night, you know, study group is meeting and, uh, and well, I, I don't get to do what I want to do or the Wednesday night men's study I just talked about. I don't get what I, to do what I want to do. I don't have absolute freedom. I'm going to sacrifice to show up to an event like that or whatever the case may be. So community, which gives us meaning, requires sacrifice. That was sort of a, a side discussion, a sidebar discussion. But as we think about what it means to have a relationship with God who gives us ultimate meaning, we want to know the role that fear plays in that relationship. And the role that love plays in that relationship. Look at John, 1 John 1.18. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Anyone who matures in their faith realizes that fear is not a sustainable motivation for being a Christian. There has to be something deeper that motivates us. Just going back to the, the introductory analogy, if you work for an employer and maybe you're paid well, but you're always in fear that the minute you step out of line, it's, game, it's lights out, game over, ultimately it's not sustainable. You're going to go somewhere else. And relationships are like that as well, aren't they? I mean, uh, marriages cannot be based on fear. A wife cannot fear her husband. A husband can't fear his wife's going to walk out every time he upsets her. Friendships don't function that way out of fear, right? Like to truly, like, like my bros, my buddies, friends, like uh, we can speak freely. And I know that, you know, I may ruffle their feathers a little bit, but they're not going to swear me off for life saying you're dead to me. Because, and if, you know, if someone does that, you know, they weren't really a friend in the first place. And so friendships don't work, can't work that way. Marriages can't work that way. Relationships can't work that way. And so this hard saying, back to our text this morning in Luke, seems to defy that. Seems to go against the sort of common sense logic that fear is not a sustaining um, power in relationships. Look what Jesus says in Luke 12. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do, but I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Now, if that's not a hard saying of the Bible, I, I don't really know what is, right? Like, fear the one who can cast into hell. It's interesting, it doesn't say cast you into hell. It just says cast into hell. So what's going on here? 
Well, as Jesus gains more notoriety, the Pharisees became a menace to him and to his followers. In other words, the Pharisees were always trying to trap Jesus and his followers, and the Pharisees had influence and they had power. And you can imagine if someone is watching your every word to get you in trouble with the authorities, over time you start to get paranoid. And so the disciples are kind of paranoid that the Pharisees are sort of stepping up their efforts to catch Jesus. You know, you've read your Bible and it says, and they asked Jesus this question hoping that they would ensnare him or trap him. And Jesus, of course, was too slick for it. He knew their thoughts. But the disciples didn't. And they were waiting for the disciples to be tripped up. And the disciples were afraid. I often feel that way sometimes as a pastor when I hear about somebody taking some other pastor's words out of context. Maybe some internet troll scouring our website. I mean, we're just, we're just a blip on the radar as a church here. But like, you know, maybe they're like scouring our website sermons for some errant word to post online to demonstrate Christians are bigoted and intolerant or something like that. And at some point, I just have to say, um, well, you know, it's the word of God, and if it offends, it offends. I don't know what else I can do but preach the word of God. But the disciples weren't just faced with someone who was trying to sort of cancel them. They were faced with a prospect of real physical harm. The idea that they might be hauled before the court and sentenced to death. I don't know if you heard this morning, Saudi Arabia just executed a huge group of people. It was the largest mass execution they've ever had. Well, the disciples are afraid of that. That happened in the Roman Empire in the first century all the time. So Jesus starts out by saying that they shouldn't be duplicitous in their faith. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Leaven was yeast. You remember leaven became a symbol for sin and disobedient behavior. And he says, their behavior is hypocrisy. They say one thing, they do another. Nothing is covered up that won't be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And one of the things that Jesus is concerned about for us is to walk the walk and talk the talk, so to speak. To be authentic and to be faithful and to mean what we say and say what we mean And not to say things behind closed doors that we would not want getting out. Particularly with relation to our confession about who God is and his son Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is recognizing that if we're followers of him, people need to know it. The passage here is really about confessing Christ. And about not being afraid to confess Christ. And I would say... A lot of us are. A lot of us are afraid. We are often duplicitous like the Pharisees. We can be. And Jesus points out three ways in which his gospel reveals our brokenness and sin. Ways that we might not be much different than the Pharisees. Having an outward appearance of cleanliness but being full of greed on the inside. That was the Pharisees' problem. Sacrificing a portion of our possessions while neglecting justice for others. 
and love for God. And then third, doing good out of a love for the honor that it brings us, but not because we deeply enjoy serving other people. And the Pharisees who live this way seem to have power over the disciples. And subsequently, it strikes fear into the disciples' hearts because they're always threatening Jesus and his disciples. But Jesus wants them to know that they're not the ones to be feared. And Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, don't fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. That's a strange statement. <laughs> because I'm pretty afraid of someone who can kill my body. I do a lot of things to make sure that I don't get my body killed. <laughs> I put my seatbelt on. I watch my back. When I sit in a restaurant, I have my eyes towards the door. It's a crazy world we live in. And you probably do the same thing too. Most of the time, and Jesus says, don't be afraid to those, about those who can kill the body. The only way this statement makes sense is if you have an eternal perspective. The only way this statement makes any sense is if you recognize that this brief little blip of a life in eternity is not all there is. We have to have an eternal perspective. This is really about who we believe has ultimate authority over us as human beings, God or man. And Jesus says, but I'll warn you whom to fear for him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Listen, from time to time, we need this reality check, don't we? Fear God, not man. And I don't, I'm not going on, on a limb here to say that each one of us fears the people around us in different ways, often more than we fear God. But the command from Scripture time and time again is for us to fear God. And it's a reverent fear. It's not the kind of unhealthy, dysfunctional fear that traumatizes our hearts and souls because it's someone we're afraid of who wishes us harm. But it's a reverent fear that the Bible is talking about. Job 28 says, here is wisdom. To fear God and depart from evil. Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Luke 1.50. His mercy is on them who fear him. Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Clearly the Bible has a pretty high view of fearing God. There's a positive spin the Bible gives, positive connotation to the idea of fearing God. Listen, we should have a small fear of the people around us and a big fear of God, but instead we have it just... The opposite. We fear people around us, and we have a, in a big way, and we have a small fear of God. And for us, it's not the fear of death, typically, especially when it comes to confessing Christ. We're not afraid someone's going to kill us or that our court system is going to have us executed. Frankly, we're afraid of people's opinions. We're afraid of what people think about us. Aren't you? 
Yeah. You're afraid that someone might think you're nuts or not cool or dumb or a radical or a fanatic. Call it what you like, reputation, peer pressure, people-pleasing, codependency. We are controlled and mastered by these things. And as a result, we hold other people in awe instead of God. We care so much about what people think of us. Someone once said, when you're 20, you care about what everyone else thinks. When you're 40, you stop caring what everyone thinks. And when you're 60, you realize no one was ever thinking about you in the first place. The gray hairs here say amen. (laughs) It's rarely what others can do to us, but what they think of us that paralyzes us from evangelism, for standing up for Jesus, for letting our neighbors and people know that we follow Christ. Here are a few tasks that might reveal who you really fear. Are you controlled by what others think of you? You may at first say, no. But think about some of the things you do, maybe some habits that may reveal that that is true. Does your self-esteem rise and fall based on others' opinions? I think that's true about me. I mean, I, I, just a moment of confession. I can get 20 attaboys, but one voice of criticism makes me want to pack up and go home in tears. I think a lot of us are like that. Are you always concerned about whether you'll look bad to people? Do you tell lies or exaggerate the truth to make yourself look better? Are you jealous of other people? These are all things explored in a book by a guy named Ed Welsh called uh, When People Are Big and God Is Small. So, It may be true that you fear the people around you more than God. And why does this matter to Jesus? Because he wants us to know that the bigger fears always take care of the lesser fears. A big fear of God will liberate you from the lesser fears of people around you, but the same is true in reverse. If you fear people bigly, you'll have a very small concern for God if your biggest fear is people. But if you fear God the most, you'll have a small concern about people. That lion of the Reformation, Martin Luther, is a really good example of the point I'm trying to make. When he was asked by the Bishop of Trier, Martin Luther, do you recant the heresies of your writings? He had you know, 25 of his books and tracts out on a table as he stood before the archbishop. And his second answer is very well known, but his first answer is not. We're familiar with the second answer, which is, I cannot and will not recant anything unless I'm convinced by scripture and conscience. But his first answer was, Can you give me 24 hours to think about it? That happened. It's less known, less well known. But Martin Luther said, I need 24 hours. 
And I don't believe it's because Martin Luther was afraid of them, but he was afraid of God. He wasn't afraid what they would do to him. He thought, where, who do I really fear here? And after praying for 24 hours, he recognized that it wasn't the people in front of him, even the archbishop and this great assembly interrogating him that he needed to be afraid of. It was God. And he said, unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have often contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Here I stand. I can do no other. We look at that and we think, well, there's a good lesson in conscience, but it's really a story about fear. It's really a lesson about who Martin Luther feared more. And it has to do with who we fear. God or man? Luther feared God more than man. Jesus' words to fear God, since at the final judgment he has authority to cast into hell, is a reality check about whose power is greater. It was not a threat. And I'm going to demonstrate why. Because in the very next verse, this is what Jesus says. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Sparrows were cheap. They were small. And it was a little bit of meat. And for one penny, you could get two sparrows. And if you spent two pennies, you got a deal. And they threw one in for free. And you got five sparrows for two pennies. They were cheap and insignificant. And Jesus says, and not one of them is forgotten before God. I paused there when I read that and I thought, hmm. Jesus is saying that like all of the sparrows that have ever died, God knows them. All of the sparrows that have ever lived, God knows them. The tiny sparrows that sort of, you know, hop back and forth between the trees in your yard, God knows them. And this is what Jesus said. If they haven't been forgotten before God, why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. For you are more valuable and are of more value than many sparrows. And what Jesus is essentially saying is don't fear God. I mean, don't fear man. Fear God. But if you belong to God, you don't have to fear. You don't have to be afraid if you belong to him. People should fear God more than man. But those who belong to their heavenly father need not fear. It seems like a contradiction. Be afraid of God, but don't be afraid. Fear God more than man, but if you're his, don't fear him. Kind of schizophrenic at first glance with its simultaneous commands. But the point is, being united to Christ means that we will not be cast into hell. Isn't that a comfort? Again, this eternal perspective. If you don't have an eternal perspective, none of this makes any difference. 
You have to have an eternal perspective. You have to believe that when this life is over, God bless every one of us to live very long lives, but we know that that may not be true for everyone here. People all the time are snatched before their time. My brother died at 38 of a heart condition he didn't know he had. And I stood there standing over my brother's body in the you know, emergency room in the hospital and he was gone. And my comfort was that my brother was a believer and my brother had a sure confidence in eternity. My brother always had an eternal perspective and I praise God for that. Being united to Christ means that the one who has authority to cast into hell doesn't cast us into hell because we belong to him. For Christ's sake, we are beloved of the Father and need not fear. Adopted into his family and protected from eternal harm. That's another way you could describe it. Do you have that eternal security this morning? Ask yourself that question. Do I feel that sense of eternal security? Do I have that assurance that the one who has authority to cast into hell is not casting me into hell? And the confidence is not because you're a good person, but on account of Christ, that you've been united to Christ by faith. And that you are now trusting in Christ for salvation because your hope is in Christ's atoning work and his accomplishments, not your own. Whatever happens with the economy, economy is taking a dive. Things seem to be escalating in Eastern Europe with Ukraine. Are you trusting in Christ for your salvation? Whatever's going on with your health, and some of us here have some serious health challenges, are you trusting in Christ for your salvation, for your eternity? Questions about the future, not knowing what the future holds in our society. Are you trusting in Christ for your salvation? Have you fully surrendered and given your life to Christ, or have you just surrendered in part? I don't want to always second guess whether I've surrendered my heart to Christ. I want to lay everything and put everything on the table so that I'm trusting in him fully and not in myself. Let's pray. Father, we pray, O oh God, and we ask that you would strengthen our hearts this morning that we might come to you with an awe-filled wonder, a fearful reverence of your eternal and absolute majestic power, and at the same time come to you as children who are beloved of their father on account of our brother Christ who has brothered us and brought us into the family of God. Our confidence, our hope is in Christ who saves us, delivers us, and rescues us by faith. And in him, united to him, our living Lord, we need not fear. And so thank you for the confidence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.